welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment. I'm your host, Sam Corbel. Today, I'm fortunate enough to have Gary Trot on the podcast. Gary has 30 years of experience in the architectural lighting industry. With a background in sales, marketing, and engineering, he's focused his last 15 years on product development and in July of 2019, founded his own company, Interplay Lighting. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. How are things going? How was your flight into Denver? It's going great. As always, lots of challenges sometimes when you travel, but I'm here and really excited to be here and share this time with you. That's awesome. You know, I appreciate you making some time to, to catch up with us here at The Light Pod. It's always fun to have innovators and founders who are excited about not only where lighting's been, but where it's going. You're obviously passionate about lighting. Where did that start? You bet I sure am. It started back in 1990, I believe it was, the first day I walked into Illumination One with Professor David Delora as the teacher. And from that point on, he really sparked my interest in lighting and my love for it. I was swimming in college, having a good time, and he gave me the focus, and then I started working and getting good grades. Lighting is something that I think appealed to a lot of people when they took David's class at a young age. Did you have a spark with lighting when you met David and you took that first Illumin class or did it develop over time? It caught me off guard. Uh, developed over time. It really was the spark when he turned the lights out and basically said, hey, without light, you have nothing. You don't see anything. And it really is a way to really emphasize how crucial lighting is. And so then over time, as you go through that class and you do exercises like sketching walls with um, that wall brackets are lit and really showing you how to appreciate and look at light more deeply, And then even beyond that, when you go later and you start to understand how things like radiative transfer and calculations actually do that, it gives you a real understanding of light, intuitive understanding of light and how it reacts with architecture, people and different surfaces. You know, you said something interesting there, an intuitive understanding of light. I feel like most people think they have an intuitive understanding of light by nature of the sun comes up and goes down every day and people turn the light switches on and off. But lighting isn't necessarily intuitive. What does that mean to you? That lighting is not intuitive. It actually is intuitive to most people, but at a very high level. Someone could walk in and say, the space is light, the space is dark, this place is glary. And so... The challenge for people who are designing either luminaires or lighting systems is how can you get that impression from someone who knows nothing about lighting, but you make a thousand decisions that could result in somebody being very unhappy or happy because they do, people notice it. They just don't know what they're seeing. And that's the kind of challenge of developing lights and lighting design is getting that end result. You know, I recently spoke with a couple design professionals that have been in this industry for their lifetime, maybe 40 or 50 years. And they shared with me, lighting is a bit of the unsung hero in the sense that it's what brings a space together at the end of the day, but people don't necessarily know why. Let's talk about what it means to make a light though. You've been in this business for almost 30 years. Where did you go straight out of college and and what was your initial experience? What manufacturing used to be like? You bet. So right out of school, I went to work at Lithonia Lighting, that's what it was called back then, and in a in a as an intern. It was back in 1992 and nobody was hiring. I could have gone into lighting design, but I would have been paid minimum wage. So I was like, what the heck? We'll go to Georgia and see what this is all about and got involved in a research project with um, Kevin Ledford, who um, was also a mentor of mine and 
just really dug into it there. And that gave me an introduction into the Luminaire business. And I had the chance to go all over the company and learn the different businesses, the parts of the business. And it allowed me to really focus in on downlighting at the time or after a year and a half or so, which is really the lighting application that was the most creative at that time. And this was probably uh, mid 90s, 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, about that. The interesting thing is that if I compare just hardware development today to what it was then, in a lot of ways it hasn't changed. And that may be surprising. And the reason is, is that back then you had mechanical work, you had optical work you had to do, you had thermal management because you had to keep things, same thing today. So there's this little gap of time when I left um, Acuity Brands after having been there for 14 years and I worked for a startup called LED Lighting Fixtures back in 2006. We created the first commercial downlights that were viable. There were no LED boards, there were no LED drivers. We had to invent it all. So at that point, it was very different. But over the last 14 years, now it's got to the point where drivers and LED boards or modules are almost like it was back in the 90s when you just mechanically assembled stuff. Now, you absolutely can go way beyond that today when you start doing things, color changing lights or other things that are meant to mimic the outdoors. Um, you can go a lot further, but really at the core, there's a lot of similarities. Obviously, there's a, a beginning and a middle and an end to manufacturing. It starts with the design, and then there's a, a big design process that maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves, but it's designing how to actually manufacture something or the industrial side of that beautiful architectural luminaire. And then there's the finished product. What does that process look like today? Just give us a little bit of insight sure. as to how that comes together. It's a messy process, but it's a fun process. And it's really fun if you get together a team that collaborates and works well together. How do you develop products in a very innovative way? It's really hard to do that. I have been fortunate that I have been a part of teams at all the companies that I've worked for, including the one I'm, um, I founded now, where you get this sweet spot of the right team, the right vision and the right drive that you can really make magic happen. And so it's a combination of having a big problem you're trying to solve, a vision to get there. I call it the heart of the product. And you wanna drive towards this heart of the product and you get a team of people. And there's one person who probably is the one who really protects the heart of that product. Sometimes it's been a marketing person, sometimes an engineer, but then everybody gets behind it and there's this belief. So you have to have that. You have to have optimism because when you start developing a product where you're trying to solve a big problem that you're like, I don't know how we're gonna do this. You have to be optimistic that you can do it because generally the problems that are the most interesting to solve are the ones that no one has solved yet, but your customer really wants you to solve. Absolutely. I think the dynamic of solving problems maybe hasn't evolved in the sense that we still need to put light in a space today, but ultimately as a specifier, as a, an owner, as an end user, people like to see new things. Are you solving new problems or are you resolving the same problem with new technology? It's a very good question. You know, the you're always solving customer problems and what you want to do, especially if you're creating something innovative, is solve a problem that maybe they don't even know about. Um, things that they haven't thought because a lot of times if you'll go and ask a customer say what light they want they really don't know you can't ask a customer for what they haven't imagined yet right so I think that um, what we're doing now is interesting because the way you solve the problems can actually be 
different, but the problems you're solving are pretty similar because you want to create a space that's comfortable and vibrant. You want to create a light that integrates well with the architecture and it just works. And you want to make people comfortable and happy at the end of the day in the light. So in that respect, related to the lighting design side of things, you are solving the same kinds of problems, but you have new ways that you can solve it with different technology. You're solving the same problems with new technology. Or did you say new problems with new technology? It's kind of a combination of both. I think, well, let me give you an example. I can probably answer this with an example, it'll be better. And really what started the work that I'm doing right now with my team is if you look at an application of a high ceiling with a without a drop ceiling, those are everywhere, right? There really hasn't been a product that was designed specifically for that application. There are products that were adapted for it that actually work okay, but they were designed for ceilings like this one, this nine foot. We start out by saying, what if we created something that was just for that space? And so we found that there's absolutely a problem that hadn't been solved there, which is how do you fill that space with light with something that is not a linear. When you look at that unique space and the fact that adaptability is an option, but creating something from the ground up really will suit the needs and the requirements of that design the best. When it comes to putting everything together to actually manufacture that luminaire, how does it compare to what's gone in the past? There's that team that you spoke of. There's a set of resources that have to come into play to create that product from research and development all the way to manufacturing and production. There's seemingly a lot more nuances and details that go into a light fixture today and everybody's time is limited and and resources aren't uh, just, you know, point over the waterfall here. Has it become more difficult to, to focus that team and push things to market as fast today? What's that landscape look like? So the interesting thing is having done this at big companies and small companies is that the process typically is the same at one place or the other. And what happens is, is that the challenges come the bigger the team gets. The more people that are involved, the more dogged the process, and the more design by committee you have, the more challenging it is. So it really comes down to, it's a people problem because you have a team. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier, there's this magic combination of team that you have to find that hasn't changed is to put those pieces in place where you have you need to have the visionary I mentioned you need to have a mechanical designer an industrial designer somebody's looking after the optics somebody who's looking after how are we going to manufacture this how are we going to and then then somebody how we're going to sell it and how we're going to market it all those people have to work together and that that still is the same with respect to the team and the fact that things in terms of the process have generally speaking stayed the same there's entities outside of any manufacturer like UL, um, new things like DLC that have come to play, an increasingly amount of what seems certifications that are required to simply be considered for a project. Has that affected the ability to create and produce new products? Yeah, it absolutely does. And you really have to think about it from the beginning and get creative because if you're not careful, it can be the biggest barrier in your project. If you make a bad decision, or don't pay enough attention to it, and specifically on the UL certification side. Um, that's, that's very important. But the good news is, is that those certifications have become pretty stable, and so, so you know what to do. Now, there are times, and it goes back to even, we created some of the first products that UL needed to certify with LED technology, and they kind of had to write the, write the rules as you went along. And to a certain extent, with the 3D printed, um, lights that we're creating, there's some slightly different tweaks and things that we're having to teach them on as well. But 
It is crucial to be focused on getting those certifications done because if you don't watch out, it will crush you. Does UL look to the industry to try to understand how they need to evolve to continue to not only be that that authority and keep everybody safe and luminaires and, and electricity safe, but adapt with what's going on? Absolutely. You know, I mean, they're a large organization, so yeah, it, it takes time, right? But that's the whole idea of a standard is it's not them just creating it themselves or getting input from the industry and consensus from the industry. And, you know, regarding certain things like DLC or Title 24, those become more of a a marketing and a commercial decision because you don't have to have those, right? Absolutely. If you want to sell in California, you you better work on that. Or if you're all about rebates and retrofits, you better have DLC. But it's not something necessary for everything. But you really have to know your target market and the commercial side of it to make the decision on what certifications you need to go after that are voluntary. Well, I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can dive into the details a little bit more, what it takes to navigate that seemingly messy long process. But the reality is things do come out at the end of the funnel, how long it takes to run something through R&D and what major hurdles are that you have to overcome. Sounds great. Hey, real quick, it's Sam. The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little entertainment in the form of short two minute videos and things like this podcast too. Be sure to check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I.com. And welcome back. We were just catching up with Gary about what it means to be a manufacturer and how the process, although technology has evolved, has fundamentally really stayed the same. Gary, let's dive in just a little bit more to that process of what it takes to go from research and development into, or maybe we should say concept development into R&D, industrial engineering onto the line and and making this something that can get out the door. uh, It's really easy, I think, to come up with a cool idea. Mm -hmm. It's even easier to say, yeah, that's great. Executing on it is the main challenge, always has been and continues to be. That's right. The way I talk about it is the first talk about conceptual design or what some people call R&D. It's really easy to make one light that looks really cool and get excited about it. Once you get to that point, and it takes a while to get there, but once you get to that point and you say, okay, yeah, I know I have a product and I could think of multiple big days. Those are like big days. When you're like, yep, that optimism finally has come through and now you know that you have something. Now it's time to move to the next stage, which, which is detailed development. And that's figuring out, okay, how are we going to make this thing? And can we make this thing? And that's where the dream starts meeting reality. And when this happens, a lot of times when you're doing conceptual design, it's kind of like broad strokes. And now you have to do finer strokes. And when you start doing that, you start to realize maybe these tolerances won't work or maybe the process actually can't make that. And then you start making compromises. And unfortunately, there's a lot, you know, it's like, so you have this dream, this vision, this heart of the product and everything is fighting at it. You have to change this for you well, or you have to add this um, issue or you're not diffusing the LEDs well enough, whatever it may be. You just kind of run through that. And then hopefully at the end of that, you're able to survive and still have an awesome product. And sometimes you don't. And sometimes you have to stop. And frankly, that's the hardest thing to do is stop if you have this thing that you've gotten so excited about and it's like, you know what? It's not gonna work. But if it does work, now you're on to the next stage, which is creating these detailed drawings that you send out for quotations and you start getting parts back. And those detailed drawings 
what are those for the the, the components of the luminaire yes itself? all the components exactly because as a luminaire manufacturer you can't physically possibly make everything down to the screws i mean you could That's right. but that doesn't make sense no no so you buy stuff off the shelf that makes sense and generally the stuff that you want to work on that you make unique is something that allows you to differentiate yeah so you send all these parts out and then the quotes come back in and you figure out how much it's going to cost us to tool it was it going to are we going to actually be able to sell it at a price that our cost allows us to make money enough to justify it there's another place where products sometimes go away is that you have a beautiful concept you can't the market price won't support the cost that you have right so there's all these things that's really uh I said it was a messy process and it's a it's a roller coaster because one day you have a breakthrough and the next day it's like, oh my gosh, we're in trouble, right? And like, how can we get through this? And then you find a way to get through it. And that's why the team is so important. And you have to have that optimism and that belief and that excitement behind the idea so that you can get through that messy middle and then get the product launched. When you're going through the messy metal, there's a lot of steps there. And a couple that stood out to me was maybe the tops of the tops and the bottoms of the bottoms and the roller coaster. One of the tops of the tops is finding that leader who really is not going to let anything compromise that is critical to the development of it. The bottom was, it's just too expensive. What do you do to try and figure out what the market wants versus what it will bear? Yeah, that that takes some creativity. That's a real imprecise science. And but science is precise, Gary. Yeah, that's true. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> An imprecise art. How about that? You kind of look at the range and what other products are out there. Like typically, I've worked on products that there wasn't something similar. So you have to relate it to other things. And, and, and you know, if you're gonna create something that is replacing another product solution that's out there that's much better, that you're gonna be much better, you're gonna be more expensive, but you can't be 10 times as much, right? So there's some reality to it. You know, once you get to those times, and the, the good thing is, is that the teams that I'm talking about, I always come back to the team because that's so crucial here, is you have to have people who have a bias to find the solution versus a bias to finding why you can't do something. And if you get somebody whose whole goal is to find ways you can't do it, you're gonna be unsuccessful. You're not gonna be successful. So you've gotta find those people. And when you have those situations where you hit those barriers, those people who are positive will help you get through it. Now, you do need those people who are trying to find a way not to do it when you're doing verification testing because that's really their job. Let's beat this thing up and make you it fail. You have to poke holes in it at some point. Absolutely. You have to absolutely break things down and make sure that there's no way anything's not going to make it through. That's right. Let's go back to that highest of the high, the, the leader of the team, the person who doesn't compromise on the defined vision. You said that can be a number of people from marketing to sales, engineering, the founder. Does that evolve from project to project across companies? What have you seen in terms of how that person comes to light and where their responsibility ends up as the project moves across the board to the finish line. You bet. I'd say you're typically going to find that's going to be a marketing person, a salesperson, or an engineer. Almost all the time, that's who they are. When you look at that spread, I'd say it really depends on the company. Are you a company that is a technology push company where you, it's a bill that you will come and here's a cool technology where you buy it versus one that's more market driven where you're trying to solve problems. So, you know, an engineer might be more of the champion and a technology driven or a, mar or a marketing person and a market driven company, but it really doesn't matter, you know, because it, again, 
business. They, they're the ones who just get everybody so fired up and want to work on the project, want the breakthrough walls to, to make this happen. And, and, and I'm really talking about these are the breakthrough products and that's really what fires me up. These are the teams you need to do breakthrough products. You don't necessarily need it for a line extension or I'm knocking off a high bay and I want to do something like that. What I'm talking about are highly collaborative high-performance teams whose goal is to create game-changing products that make people say, wow, it's hard to do. And and that's why I've just found us the team and that inspirational leader and that vision and that heart of the product that you have to go after. I don't know if this is fair, but we'll give it a shot. What's the minimum amount of people you've got to have on a team like that? Yeah, there really isn't. But I would say you would, you need at least two because... One person to smile, one person to frown. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Well, you need one person to tell you you're stupid. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that with people who are very passionate, sometimes you get so passionate passionate and I'm guilty of this and some people I've collaborated with I'm where, right there with you where you get so pumped up about something you think it's the most amazing thing you also have to have an open mind and humility and if somebody can make a strong argument that this is why this doesn't make sense that you back off of it so you have to have those checks and balances and you know for me that's why when I started interplay lighting I started collaborating just as quickly as I could just to make sure that I didn't go running down some rabbit holes that were gonna force me to be unsuccessful. And the, the folks who, who are working with me have really helped. You know, there's something to be said about your passion for lighting. I think there's also 30 years of experience that have helped you get to where you're at today. An underlying thing that everybody seems to wanna to kind of point back to, and I'd love to just ask, what has mentorship done for you to help you get to where you're at today? And did you realize that it was even mentorship at the time? I can look back at my career at you know a handful of people who I count as mentors. And I would say that it started out very naturally that they started mentoring me or we connected with each other. We became friends. They started giving me advice. And then I started kind of actively going towards them more and asking for more. And and, and yeah, so it's been very, very organic and incredibly helpful. Um, also to, to help keep you from, keep you on track, make sure, and, and, and mentors have a very good way of knowing what you're good at, especially if they've worked with you and, and keep you focused and, and keep pointing you that, that direction. So I've been fortunate to have some awesome ones. And I've also been fortunate to have some, some folks who now, as I've gotten more experience that I've been able to mentor, and it's really <clears throat> incredibly rewarding, uh, someone who I was a mentor for, for for quite some time, recently had a big breakthrough with a, a, a big job recently, and it was something that he had been wanting for years and years, and when he finally got it, it was, it was probably one of the highlights of my year last year when he gave me the call and said that he got the job. I mean, that's like, because I've been so fortunate to have people give to me that that is the whole pay it forward kind of thing. It felt good that now I'm, I can I can actually do that as well. So I definitely would encourage anyone who doesn't have a mentor to go pursue them. And I think that the, the formal mentorship programs are a good start, but don't wait for somebody to come become your mentor. Go find them. Find somebody who works the way that you want to work, does the things you want to do, work with them, talk to them, invite them to lunch. And... That way you can start to learn and build that yourself because really finding the mentors ultimately is your responsibility. And the same with um, being a mentor for others. And it's uh, something I highly recommend anyone do. I think you make a great point. Um, it's hard to walk up to someone and say, hey, please be my mentor. 
you said, you know, just invite someone to lunch, let them know you're curious to learn more about what it is that they do and show unique interest in what it is they're passionate or good about. Do you have any other advice on ways to approach potential mentors? I think that's the main way. And you just go into it real gently and just see if it's a fit. And the great thing is, is that most people want to give back. And so I think you'd be surprised at how many people will be very receptive to that. People really want to share their experience and what they've learned, especially with people who they see are inspired, excited, and and maybe see on the same path that that mentor was on. Bottom line, don't be afraid to let anyone know who you are. That's right. You know, the architectural lighting industry is on a good day, 15,000 strong. Maybe there's five or 10,000 of us, depending on what article you read or who you talk to. But bottom line is everybody needs help along the way. And um, it's great that you've had that opportunity to both not only experience it, but give back. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who maybe you've mentored and you don't even know yet at this point, but you'll come to learn. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to have a new company that does some 3D printing. Let's tackle that in the next episode of this podcast. That sounds great. Sound good? Yep. For everybody out there, stay tuned. Episode two with Gary is coming. How he founded Interplay Lighting. Yep, that's right. 3D printed light fixtures. They're no longer a pipe dream. They're about to be a real thing. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Sam. Thanks again for tuning into the Light Pod, where we tell stories about people in the lighting industry, their accomplishments, and the challenges they face each and every day. One more thing, real quick. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure and head back to your podcast app to hit follow or subscribe. That's the easiest way to make sure you never miss an episode. We look forward to catching up with you again soon. Until then, Cheers.